Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Johnson himself was a domestic philosopher, and it was his ideas that were read by ordinary people, the college graduates of the era, in the intellectual formative years of the 1740s and 50s. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Neil Olson discussing the philosophy of educator and man of the cloth, Samuel Johnson. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Neil Olson, and he'll be discussing the life of Connecticut's Samuel Johnson. Johnson is not a figure I knew much about. I'd probably venture a guess that you don't either. But that's the beauty of what we do here at the Journal of the American Revolution. His story's remarkable. Uh, he was sort of the first, maybe we'll say, first-generation uh, social media influencer in a way. Uh, Samuel Johnson wrote a lot about reform in government, about reform in education, and reform in religion. Uh, very much a man of his time. And his impact as Neil Olson will discuss today, is undeniable. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Neil Olson. Neil Olson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, I was for many years a software engineer, and after I retired, a friend of mine had written a parish history book, and it was out of date. So after he died, I volunteered to update it, and I got interested into writing that history, and then another history followed, and another history book followed that. So I found myself in a sort of second life as a historian. Uh, And the church that I worked with was in New Haven, Connecticut, and had quite a rich history. So I've been working my way through some of the more famous members of the church and more famous incidents of the church. But the founder was uh, the Reverend Dr. Samuel Johnson, which is what the article in JAR was about. Uh, right now, I'm working on other books as well, including a biography of uh, Johnson. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, we we have a uh, time right now where we are looking once again at the founders, maybe with a different viewpoint. And I wanted to give it a viewpoint that was perhaps a little more positive than some of the things we've heard. We've uh, Johnson, my thesis is Dr. Johnson was the man who sort of invented the concept of the pursuit of happiness as applies to American uh, history and American theology and American philosophy. He was, in in 1729, he visited the great philosopher George Berkeley, and while visiting him, he came up with this concept that uh, education and moral philosophy and even religion are all based on the concept of the pursuit of happiness. This was not a phrase that was really known. We all know it today, of course, because of the uh, Declaration of Independence. And I was 
I got into this partially because I was trying to figure out where did that phrase come from? So it was a very unusual phrase, and particularly in the way it was applied. Other people had used it, but it was always in a negative sense. The Puritans would say, uh, if you follow the pursuit of happiness, you're going to end up damned because it's a vain pursuit. Dr. Johnson of Connecticut uh, decided that, no, it was positive pursuit. In fact, it was the basis of your morality and your education. So I basically thought, you know, we could we could do with a little happiness right now and a little bit of return to some of our core motives and core values of, of, uh, of, of the 17th, of the 18th century. Tell us, who was Samuel Johnson? Sure. He, he was a uh, member of a ancient Puritan family, a great-grandson of an immigrant to New England during the Great Puritan Migration. Uh, very fa- his family members founded Boston and New Haven, but by the third generation, they had become millers in the town of Guilford, Connecticut. Johnson was born in 1696. He was taught by his grandfather to read and write at age four. He was something of a prodigy. Uh, of course, uh, when he grew up, it was clear where he would go. Yale had been founded two towns over in 1702. So he went over to Yale and began to study the ancient Puritan curriculum of the day that they taught there and at Harvard. He, of course, was a little bored by his senior year. There were only 70 books in the Yale library and they had his Harvard tutor notes. And so he decided uh, that he knew everything there was to be known and he would write an encyclopedia of the sum of all knowledge in Latin. And he did so in one year, uh, which was uh, which was quite an achievement. But as he finished it, he got word that uh, some donors in England were sending a set of Enlightenment books over about 800 of them from England. And when they arrived, he discovered that everything he had learned was way out of date. So he decided to go read the books and then rewrite the encyclopedia. And it's, uh, when he did that, he was appointed tutor at Yale and started teaching it. He was the first man to teach the Enlightenment curriculum at in uh, America, including such things as Newton and Locke and Boyle and Copernicus. They didn't teach Copernicus or algebra until Johnson started teaching it at Yale. Um, He was eventually, um, like anyone who teaches Copernicus in a a theocracy, he was eventually ousted from his position, and he um, ended up becoming a minister at the small church in West Haven, Connecticut, which gave him lots of time to read more and to think about philosophy more. Uh, and uh, he became a, uh, a minister who really would prefer to get back into teaching, but at the time he could only become a minister because he had very unorthodox ideas on education. Neil, you open your article with a story of a, of a horseback ride. You say it's very important. Uh, tell us why. Well, this is right after he was appointed to this position in, in West Haven, a small little church. Um, he discovered, uh, he was a great reader. He, he left a list of the books he read, and it was 1,400 heavyweight books he, he read in the next 30 years. One of them uh, was uh, Willitson's Religion of Nature. Willitson was considered the founder of modern deism, among other things. And uh, he was perplexed by it, and he had a lot of questions on, on some of the uh, philosophy when he heard that the great philosopher George Berkeley was coming to America to found a college uh, over in, uh, I think, Jamaica. Uh, When Berkeley arrived, he decided to set up camp in Rhode Island, Newport. Johnson got wind of that and immediately got on his horse to run, to ride out and 
meet the great man, and they spent weeks together walking together and talking about philosophy. So on their horseback ride back, he considered some of George Berkeley's ideas and how they would apply to America. Having a somewhat independent mind, he came up with his own concepts. So I always, I, the other reason, of course, for the uh, study with a horseback ride is I uncovered a list of expenses that he, he had on the way over there and back, which I thought was interesting. And that I read, remember reading, someone said that they would rather have an expense report by a great man than five commentaries on him. And so I thought, yeah, that's, I can see why, because the, the expense report was far more interesting than perhaps uh, the, the fifth regurgitation of a commentary on a, on a figure. So I thought it'd be interesting to start off with that as a hook. That this is uh, this America, the idea of America was formulated by this one man after meeting George Berkeley and after thinking about all the uh, uh, issues of uh, Puritan America and uh, on, on, on his way back on a four or five day journey from Newport to Stratford, Connecticut. What does Johnson publish following that tremendous meeting? Well, it's, it's a bit odd because when, I, when you think of philosophers, you think they write this heavy book in Latin written for other philosophers. Johnson didn't do that. He wrote what essentially we would think of as an educational uh, article. He wrote an, education, an article called Introduction to Philosophy. Uh, it was the first article by an American published in an English intellectual journal. He wrote it and uh, published it in 1731. It contained uh, really a, a strategy for learning more than anything else to be taught to young, uh, to young students at the universities. It was a methodical college curriculum, and he presented it as a sort of metaphysical garden of learning with a one-page table. He loved to create tables, which were lists of cur- basically curriculum courses, uh, which covered all of philosophy. Uh, in fact, he called it all of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, he actually produced about seven versions of the seven imprints. If you ever look at the uh, number of imprints of the colonial era, in something like the English Short Title Catalog, you find that that was an extraordinary number for anybody to have printed, particularly in philosophy. And as an American, it was even more extraordinary because they, they were uh, much more expensive to print books in America than in London. Uh, he actually produced over the next two decades about eight imprints or eight versions of this philosophy, starting with his journal article. So each one got larger and longer and more complex than the previous one. And uh, by the time he finished, uh, the total number of imprints he had created and published in America exceeded the number of Colonial College graduates. So the first college textbook, it was, also, it was the first college textbook in English on moral philosophy, and it had an incredible reach all across America. So if you're looking for what Americans knew about philosophy, this would be the most likely book to uh, go look at. You say in your article that he starts a denominational revolution. What do you mean by that? Well, when he was in uh, Connecticut, which was an all-Puritan Congregationalist mostly, but also Presbyterian and Subbaptist. They were basically they had a Calvinistic theology, and in the in the north, some central parts of the country of America. In the south, they were social, what I call social Anglicans. They were tradition traditionalist Anglicans who uh, followed the Church of England. Johnson, as a Puritan, decided he didn't like this Calvinist idea of predestination and sin, so he threw it out and. Uh, in his head, and he started a reading group at Yale of seven 
local ministers and faculty, and they decided to reread some of the original authors in the early Christianity. And when they read it, they began to doubt their own ordination and the validity of Calvinism. So the seven, six of the, sorry, seven of the nine people in that group uh, declared for the episcopacy at the Yale commencement of 1722, which shocked the entire New England. Um, as far as Boston, they were they were in, in horror and awe of this change that that these no, noted ministers had turned their back on the Puritan Church. Um, after a great to do, Johnson, of course, was fired from his ministerial position as a Congregationalist and ended up going to England to become ordained along with uh, four other, three other uh, men uh, from Yale. And they beca- they started what can only be considered this new version of the Church of England in Puritan America. And ultimately, he was quite successful, became a missionary minister, and he ended up founding uh, 43 parishes and 27 churches in, in around New England and Long Island. So that was his revolution, a denominational revolution. As part of that, he would train ministers, and he trains over 70 what I call disciples of his, who spread out over all the country, further extending the reach of his philosophy. So in addition to his book for the students at the universities, he trained the ministers of his Anglican church, and in particular, and large numbers of them went to the South, which was, I was always wondering, how did how did this idea of the pursuit of happiness get into the South? You know, there were all social Anglicans down there. How did it spread and largely spread through Johnson's uh, disciples that he trained? Could you talk about some of Johnson's philosophical viewpoints? Well, he had two, he was a great proponent of morality or more what they call moral philosophy or ethics. He came, he came at the problems of his day to trying to devise a rational moral philosophy. People of the time were trying to create what they called a religion of nature based entirely on science and math, and they were failing left and right to do so. And Johnson said, well, you can't really do that. You need some revelation to uh, give you some kind of support or framework for your moral philosophy. So Johnson was was very uh, much involved in looking into the religion of nature and then finding a better moral basis for it. When you read the uh, Declaration of Independence and you read the you know the second paragraph there, the where he got, where Jefferson goes into nature's and nature's God and the right to, and the pursuit of happiness, those are what Johnson those are right out of what Johnson was recommending in his own moral philosophy. But in addition to this ethical philosophy, he also had a speculative side to his work, where which was based on his understanding of Descartes. To, uh, uh, and of Berkeley, Descartes' of famous, I think, therefore I am, and Berkeley's famous uh, uh, to, to uh, perception, uh, uh, to be is to be perceived. Johnson thought about this, and he combined the two in his own American maxim, I think and perceive, therefore I am. So he started, he came up with quite a firm, very action-oriented, philosophy behind his uh, moral philosophy. This and the pursuit of happiness philosophy were the two keystones of his philosophy that he taught for 30 years in those textbooks and to the, uh, his disciples in his, uh, in his, uh, out of his uh, sort of seminary at King's College and in and, and Stratford Parsonage. What did Johnson mean by the, quote, new model college? 
Yeah, it always thro- that always throws people. Um, I, what I did is I needed a name for something that wasn't the Enlightenment College because he had created an Enlightenment College at Yale when he taught the new Enlightenment curriculum. And it was mostly teaching Newton and Locke and Boyle and Copernicus, as I mentioned. Uh, that was an, uh, Enlightenment Colleges and places like Harvard followed it after another 10, 20 years. But in addition... He got together with a friend of his by the name of Benjamin Franklin and a new friend named William Smith, later Provost William Smith of Penn. And three of them together all published major books on education and college education. Franklin wrote the idea of an English school. Uh, William Smith wrote a utopian work about a utopian college for Marinera. And uh, the... Johnson wrote his moral philosophy textbooks and the three of them actually got together in 1753 and talked about how they would create colleges and Franklin and Smith created the College of Philadelphia and Johnson created King's College which is now Columbia University it was the first of these new colleges they were not only using the enlightenment curriculum they changed the way you taught they decided instead of one tutor following the students all through four classes they would have subject matter experts called professors who would teach one course. And then the students would go from professor to professor. And they would also have not only the traditional clergy track, but they would have a professional track. They would teach doctors and lawyers and businessmen, as well as uh, clergymen. They, uh, that and a number of other innovations became, uh, to the traditional model going back to Francis Bacon in 1300 and the Elizabethan era, uh, radically changed the way we teach in colleges. I needed a name for this, and I was really quite surprised when I went back. There were very few people who offered a name. They'd note that colleges changed to teach in English instead of Latin, but that was about it. And so I needed a phrase for it. And I discovered in the works of the uh, President James Madison, and I don't mean the one who was President of the United States, I mean the President of his cousin, the President of, college, of the College of William and Mary and later a bishop of Virginia, the first bishop, he he wrote a letter to uh, Provost Smith um, asking for a description of the new model plan for a college. So I thought the words new model was echoing, of course, uh, Cromwell's new model army was a good, uh, at least labeling idea to describe this new university that uh, was based on the pursuit of happiness philosophy, and uh, was open, non-denominational, uh, profession-oriented, and, and why it covered every topic in the world. Of course, this college t- is what we teach today. This is our modern college, basically. So Johnson and Smith and Franklin created their modern, the modern university back in 1753. And so I figured it needed a new name, so I called it the new model. And I have, and been, it's uh, been. A good name for it, I think, because except, of course, now we need a new new model, then you have to come up with a better name. But right now, the new model college is the model that they started in 1753 and in uh, Columbia, which is now uh, King's College, which is now Columbia and the University of, of Pennsylvania. What do you feel is the legacy of Johnson? Well, he, he when you his, his collected works were written up by Herbert Schneider at Yale in, in 1929. And in addition to his life and letters, he breaks the books into his life as a clergyman, his life as an educator, particularly at King's College, and his philosophy. So though he had 
at least three areas where he influenced in colonial America. Uh, he taught stu students directly. I calculate he taught over 3,400 students directly. And through his textbooks, he hit just about every college graduate in America at the time. But he also influenced people. I met, we've mentioned Fred, Benjamin Franklin and William Smith, the two probably leading other educators than Johnson in America, in the colonial America. But he also was influential in teaching such people as Jonathan Edwards and, and about half the men who attended the, content, the first year and a half of the Continental Congress, uh, all show evidence of him being influenced by Johnson. One of the more interesting people influenced was his son, William Samuel Johnson. William Samuel Johnson was a lawyer, and he took his father's ideas and implemented them in the political world. He was the lead figure, really, in the Stamp Act Congress and was the author of you know, the, uh, a number of very important documents out of that Congress. And he, was, he ended up his, life, his working life as a politician as the chairman of the Committee of Style who wrote the U.S. Constitution. So he covered all the major congresses and documents from the beginning of the revolution to the Stamp Act Congress all the way to the, uh, he was a senator in the first federal Congress, which uh, passed the Bill of Rights as well. So Johnson both as, a, as an abstract theologian and his son as an active politician and statesman um, were really the key two, two key men uh, in the founding fathers who created America. Neil, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, when you read it, when I read the idea of philosophy of the era, people say either A, there was, there was no philosopher. Uh, uh, Tocqueville said, said, said that America did not have a school of philosophy. Um, and they give us a litany of, of uh, European philosophers with hard to pronounce names that no one had ever heard of in America. So I, w I was very interested in resetting that idea that Johnson himself was a domestic philosopher and it was his ideas that were read by ordinary people, the college graduates of the era in the intellectual formative years of the 1740s and 50s that became prevalent in America. Sure, people eventually read uh, Locke, for example, his, his uh, political treatise, uh, but it was actually Johnson who introduced Locke into the King's College curriculum. And people read some uh, Montesquieu, for example, and other people, but really it was more, they were more influenced by the domestic philosophy of Dr. Johnson than, than all this list of, of, of philosophers with funny spelling and funny pronunciation that most American college students didn't really know. So I thought it would be a good idea to put the American Revolution in the context of the American philosophy from people who started uh, two of the major schools of colonial America, uh, King's College and College of Philadelphia, and actually taught real students in a real school. So if there was no school of philosophy, there were two real schools of uh, students who studied their philosophy. And I think it would be really important because it was John Adams who wrote very famously he, he, something that he quoted himself four times. He wanted to get the point across. He said, the revolution was effected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people, the change in their religious sentiments and their duties and obligations. That, that is, if that is true, then it was looking for where that came from. We would go right to Johnson and understand that the revolution first occurred with Johnson coming up with his new philosophy, his new model college, his uh, new version of the 
Church of England, and the change then followed after people accepted that change in the political sphere. Neil Olson, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.